Well, let's prepare our hearts for worship. Our meditation in preparation for worship this morning comes from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the judgments which I teach you to observe, that you may live and go and possess the land which the Lord God of your fathers is giving you. You shall not add to the word which I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you. Will you pray with me? Gracious God, you are a kind and gentle, and you teach us with such patience. We are here as sheep this morning to be taught and shepherded and guided by you. We have our own foolish ideas, and we ask that you would please strip them away so that we, that we might hear only your word this morning and not add to or take away from the perfect word, which is Christ Jesus himself. We ask that in his name, Jesus. Amen. Let's worship the triune God. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We are living in strange times. People, places, and activities that we once took for granted have been taken from us and replaced, or at least attempted to be replaced, with fear, distrust, and chaos. We might be tempted during this time of social upheaval to look around at the chaos and ask, why, God? Why this? Why now? Why me? Why is my job in jeopardy? Why has this relationship been broken? Why has that neighbor, that brother, that son, that friend, why have they turned against me? Maybe your trials have nothing to do with the current socio-political meltdown. Perhaps you've lost a loved one. Maybe you're suffering undelivered from poor health. Or maybe you just desire a good thing that God simply hasn't given yet. Whatever the case, as God's people, we do not struggle in vain. We have been given these trials. We have been given these trials, these dragons, from the hand of God, so that we might win him glory. They are not accidents. These strange times and difficult trials we experience offer us opportunities to advance his kingdom in ways we could never dream possible apart from the trouble being there. He sends the dragons, yes, but he also gives us the sword as well as the charge to go and fight for his kingdom to slay the dragon, and to bring his name glory. And when we trust him for victory, and we fight in faith, we become like his son Jesus, the ultimate dragon slayer. We can fight in hope because God can be trusted. And in whatever you are facing, he can be trusted. God is sovereign. Sovereign means that everything is under his care, under his love, and completely under his control. Nothing escapes his gaze or passes by without his leave. There is not a flower of the field that can drop a petal from her stem without God allowing it. You can trust God no matter what dragons he sends your way because he is sovereign. 
He knows what he is doing, and he is going to do it. Listen to the psalmist in Psalm 37. Do not fret because of evildoers, nor be envious of the workers of iniquity, for they shall soon be cut down like the grass and wither as the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. So, we have our marching orders. Don't be afraid of or envy those who are oppressing you. God will deal with them. Instead, you spend your time trusting God's sovereignty completely and obeying him. That is to say, obeying his law and doing what is good. Where should you do this? Right here where God has placed you. Don't flee. Dwell in the land. This is where you belong. What should you eat while you do this? You should feast on the faithfulness of God. He is faithful. He can be trusted, and his faithfulness will sustain you in the midst of any trouble. Finally, delight yourself in the Lord. Find your joy and hope in him alone. When you do this, you will find that God takes away the fear, the distrust, and the chaos that the world offers, and instead gives you the desires of your heart, desires you may not have even known you had. So as we close, listen to the question and answer of the Heidelberg Catechism, which we will soon be all saying together in a few minutes. This is the question. Christian, what is your only comfort in life and death? Listen to the answer. That I, with body and soul, both in life and in death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood has fully satisfied for all my sins, and redeemed me from all the power of the devil, and so preserves me that without the will of my Father in heaven, not a hair can fall from my head. Yea, that all things must work together for my salvation, wherefore by his Holy Spirit he assures me of eternal life, and makes me heartily willing and ready henceforth to live unto him." Having heard this, we are reminded of our need to confess our sins to God. So, as you are able, will you please kneel with me? Scripture says in Psalm 19, verses 12 through 13, Who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from secret faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall become blameless, and I shall be innocent of great transgression. People of God, hear the good news. Your sins are forgiven through Christ. Well, good morning. Our text this morning is from Ephesians chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them and turn there. Ephesians chapter 2, be reading verses 1 through 10. These are the words of God. And you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy 
because of his great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Would you pray with me? Most kind and gracious Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that it reveals, the truth that you have revealed to us through it. We thank you how it speaks to us of Christ and of his work on the cross and what he has done for us. Father, open our eyes to see this in your word. Open our hearts to receive it and believe it. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, it really is a pleasure to be back down here with you, see lots of familiar faces and a few new faces we were, on, we were gearing up to come down this morning, and one of my boys woke up with a really nasty seal-like coughing or barking cough, and so they stayed home. But they were all very, very sad not to come down and see you. So send, I send you greetings from my wife and from my kids and from uh, Trinity Church as well. We pray for you regularly up there. As we are, uh, I'm going to continue to preach through the book of Ephesians, and we come now to chapter 2. This is one of the greatest and clearest summaries in the Bible of the relation between God and man in the work of salvation, in God's work of salvation. Paul deals with this in several of his letters, primarily in Romans and Galatians as well. But he uses language here in Ephesians to paint a picture that sharply contrasts the grace of God on the one hand and the total, absolute inability of man on the other. And in fact, it is this inability of man, this this dark state of man, which Paul uses, which God uses to display his grace, to put his grace on display for the world to see. This is what Paul says in this passage. Think of it like this. You you know when you go to a diamond shop, the best way to set a diamond is always against a black backdrop because it's there that you can see the shining because jewelers always place their lights just right, you know, so it hits the diamonds just right. But but, But it's the black backdrop that really sets off the diamond and shows forth the beauty of the diamond. This is what the grace of God is. The grace of God is that diamond and our state of total inability is the black backdrop to display God's grace. The world around us, including much of the church, much of the evangelical church today, doesn't like this passage, will not teach this passage. We'll do all kinds of things to bend over and twist around and skirt the truth that is clearly stated in this passage. This is because this is an age-old temptation. The world wants to say, we want to say, that man is not morally dead. 
We want to say that man is at least somewhere deep down at some level good and can choose good and can choose to do good. That he can make good decisions, generally move in the right direction, that he can govern himself and govern those under him well. But this passage completely dismantles that false teaching. But this is where we are in our world today. Again, this is an, old age, an age-old temptation, an age-old false teaching, but it is all around us. We want to have some responsibility. We want to have some ability to choose to follow God. We want to take some of that credit for ourselves. But this is, but to do so robs God of his power or seeks to. Seeks to rob God of his grace. Before we get into the particulars of this text, the beginning of chapter 2, let me remind you of what Paul has said in chapter 1. Paul began his letter reminding the Ephesians of the blessings that God has given us through his election and his adoption of us. God chose us before the foundations of the world. If you are in Christ, God selected you before you had anything to do with it. He chose you from before the foundations of the world And this choosing is not just an arbitrary or cold selection, but rather it's a choosing that makes you his, makes you his son, makes you his daughter, makes you his children and a part of his family. And this was all done to the praise of the gracious glory of Christ as God redeemed us and sealed us with his Holy Spirit so that we might obtain the inheritance. Remember that Paul says in the middle of chapter 1 that you have been sealed by the Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of your inheritance. This is a great confidence builder for believers. This is one place where we look to find assurance of our salvation. If you are in Christ, then God has said by, by his baptism, he has said you have received the Holy Spirit and if you have received the Holy Spirit, I can't lose you. That's my down payment. That's my earnest money. If I lose you, then I lose the Holy Spirit. And that is absurd. The Holy Spirit is the down payment, the mark, the guarantee for us of God's work in us. Paul then tells the Ephesians how fervently he gives thanks for them, praying that God would give them the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Christ. We talked about how the first three chapters of Ephesians really are about um, laying the doctrinal foundations of the faith, the things that you need to know, the things that Christians need to believe, and how the second half of Ephesians really focuses then more on the practical outworkings, the things to be done. And so this is why Paul prays for them that they, would have the, that they would have the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Christ and that their understanding would be enlightened, that their eyes would be opened. And he explains this in three things, particularly that they would know the hope of God's calling, that they would know the riches of Christ's inheritance in them, and that they would know the exceeding greatness of God's power. This power that was evidenced in the resurrection of Jesus. And it's with these things in mind that 
Paul concludes his prayer by praising Jesus as king over all all other authority, recognizing the union between Christ as the head and the church as the body. That's chapter 1. And through all of this, Paul marvels at the grace and power of God and all that he has done for his son and for us through him. And Paul is not done marveling at this grace, marveling at this power of God. So it's with all of this in mind then that he comes to chapter 2. At the very end of chapter 1, Paul had said that the church is the fullness of Christ. The church is the fullness of Christ. But Paul quickly dashes any possibility of pretension that the church might have. You, Christ's covenant church, are in part the fullness of Christ. There is no king without a kingdom. There is no redeemer without those that he redeems. There is a real sense, biblically speaking, in which you complete Christ. He's not dependent on you in any way, but because he has promised himself to you, because he has given himself for you, he has made you his fullness. How easy it would be for us then to think that we've earned that in some way. That Christ now depends on us. And so Paul completely shatters any pretension simply by reminding the church how they became the fullness of Christ. Look at the very first verse in chapter 2. If you have a a New King James Version or other versions, you'll notice that um, three of the words there are in italics. It says, and you, he made alive. That phrase, he made alive, if it's in italics in your Bible, it's because it's not actually there in the Greek texts. It makes sense to put it there because we don't speak or we don't read Greek, and so we don't really understand that, um, that this is implied later on if we're just reading it in the English. So it makes sense to insert it there to help us understand the text. But it's helpful also to notice that this is how it would read in the Greek. And you, dead in trespasses and sins, walking according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. You. That's how you are described. Dead in trespasses and sins. These first three verses of Ephesians chapter 2 are very dark. Very, very dark. All believers before they are saved, are dead in their sins. All men are left to themselves dead in their sins. They're bound to the death course of the world. That's what he says in verse 2. You were dead in trespasses and sins. Trespasses and sins, uh, Paul, I think, uses both terms here just to cover the whole gamut. Trespasses, the ways in which you have transgressed, you've broken God's law, and sins, the ways in which you have fallen short of God's law. And you've walked in these things according to the course of this world. The world is on a steady course of sin and death because of the fall of Adam. We all, under Adam are born into sin. 
We all, under, because of Adam, are under the reign of sin and death in this world. This was the course of the world, the, the, the path on which it was heading, the way it's going to go apart from Christ. We're dead in our sins, bound to the death course of the world, under the domination of Satan. That's what he says. You walked this way, you lived this way in these you lived, this is so striking how Paul says this, you're dead in your sins and that's how you lived. You lived dead. Your very living, your very walking is death. Uh, The movie industry did not come up with the walking dead. It's right here. Right? Your very living is death. Death. And not only that, but you walked according to the prince of the power of the air. Satan reigned over you and drove you and directed you, and you walked according to his ways. That great rebel. Not only that, You were driven by your corpse hearts and your corpse minds and your corpse flesh. We walked in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. This was everything you had and everything you were. This was your state. This is all you had to boast in. And this was all that you could have brought, if you could have brought anything, to your union with Christ. Paul says that Christ has been given as head to his body, the church. The church has been united to Christ. And what can the church bring in that union? They were dead, and so they couldn't even bring their rotten selves. Man's state here before Christ, before Christ's work in him, is one of total inability, total bondage, total darkness. And this, of course, gets to the question that's burning in everyone's minds, but what about free will? Luther echoed Paul's description here. By comparing man's will to a beast of burden that is always driven by one of two masters and always going in one of two directions. Your, so, so think of it this way. Your will, man's will, his desires, the things that cause you to do things and to choose things, is like a great ox. And behind the ox is a driver. And that driver is one of two different drivers. And you're going one of two different directions. You're either being driven by God toward heaven, by God toward Christ, by God toward toward more perfect union with him. Or you are being driven by Satan toward hell. There's only two drivers. There's only two ways. And that's man's will 
Man's will, his desire, his ability to act on those desires is not totally autonomous. We want it to be. We want to say, I have free will. I know that I can choose to do things on my own. But we have to realize, actually, that uh, that gift of free will that God has given to you is part of why you cannot choose to follow God apart from Christ. Why? Because man is actually bound by his will, by that free will. He is bound by his nature. A dead man cannot choose to live. He's bound by the state in which he is. God can give him all the free will he wants, but if he's dead, he can only choose to stay dead. He can only choose death. He can't choose or desire the things of God. He's dead. Man is limited by his nature. This is why Luther, in in his discussion about free will, says that rather than talking about using this term free will because uh, it's unclear to us, it makes us think that we, we have this autonomy to choose to follow God or not. Rather, we should describe this as natural liberty. Liberty that is dependent upon our nature. And Paul makes this very clear. Before God does something, each of us is under the dominion of Satan instead of Christ. You are as free as a slave under Satan before Christ. Each of us is bound to live in a state of death. This state of death that is brought on by our death in Adam, by our own desires, the lusts of the flesh, by our rational faculties, Paul describes as the lusts of the mind. In short, by our very nature, as Paul says, we are children of wrath. Children deserving the wrath of God by nature. It's inherent in us. We are dead in our own trespasses and sins which we lived in according to which we lived in according to the course of the world just like Paul talks about in Ephesians or in sorry in, in Romans chapter 5 Romans chapter 5 verse 12 where Paul says that just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sinned. All men are dead. All men have sinned, because of Adam's sin. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Then verse 14, Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. Adam was a type of Christ in that he was the head over the whole human race. He was the representative. And when Adam sinned, sinned, God had told him what the penalty for that sin was. In the day that you eat of of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall surely die. 
And that death was not just his, the death of his body, although it included that, but it was death that would spread from him to all of his descendants. It was a spiritual death, spiritual separation from God, and no one can fix that except for God himself. We often want to think of, or you've probably heard this analogy, of man needing to be saved as though he's drowning. And in preaching the gospel to him, we throw him a life preserver and tell him to grab on. There's some instances where that's an appropriate analogy, but really we need to understand that man is not just drowning, man is drowned. He's at the bottom of the ocean. He is lifeless. He cannot reach out and grab the life preserver. He cannot swim up to the top to find freedom. He is at the bottom, dead and lifeless. He must be raised to new life like Lazarus from the tomb. John 11, we have the story of Jesus going to his friends Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus had died. And they're asking Jesus, what, um, how could this have happened? And Jesus ends up calling Lazarus out of the tomb. But Lazarus had been dead for days. Could Lazarus have come out on his own? Could Lazarus have answered Christ and obeyed Christ on his own? He was dead. Jesus says to Lazarus, come out. But in order for Lazarus to obey the words of Christ, those words have to be life-giving. He must be made alive so that he can obey Christ so that he can come and follow him. And this is why Jesus says in John chapter 6 that no one can come to life, no one can come to him, the one who is life, unless the Father draws him. We pray for those who do not believe. And God hears our prayers and he uses our prayers. I heard that in the the corporate prayer time earlier. And we must pray to God that he would grant faith to those who do not believe because he's the only one who can. You can't. You can't present the gospel in the most winsome way and hope that it will do any good apart from God granting faith. And that should be no discouragement to us to share the gospel. I'm losing my watch here. That should be no discouragement to us in sharing the gospel, rather a great encouragement. It's not up to you. But you have been told to go and preach the gospel, to share the words of Christ with those around you. So go and share them knowing that it's not up to you. You don't have to get it perfect. If you flub it, it's okay. Because it's not up to you. It's not up to you to make sure that they're convinced. It's up to Christ to grant life. But this is only true if we actually are dead apart from Christ. We are free creatures. We are free to do what we want to do. 
but we are unable to change our hearts, to change our minds, to change our disposition to desire the things of God. So when you're when you're working through this on your own or you're discussing this with somebody and, and they ask you about how do we understand God's sovereignty and man's free will, it's fine to say that, yes, I, I fully believe that we have free will. But I also fully believe that I always do what I want to do. I always do what I want to do. And if God has not given me a new heart, then I cannot want to do the things of God. I cannot want to follow him. I cannot want to accept Jesus into my heart. I can't. I am unable to, apart from God granting that. An unbeliever cannot desire the things of God, though they be set right in front of them. This is our state. This is the situation that man is in. And so then Paul transitions with what has become two of the most delightful words for Christians to hear. But God. You were dead. You were in darkness. In fact, Paul would say uh, later on in Ephesians chapter 5 that not only were you in darkness, but you were darkness. You were desperate, with no hope, but God made you alive. And he did this because he is rich in mercy. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. God loved us while we were still stinking, rotting corpse souls. But he loved us with his great love, the kind of love which transforms the object of that love. He loved us with his great love, and in so doing, granted us life. We were totally unlovely, completely unlovely, unworthy, and yet he loved us with his great love. Paul would say something similar in Romans chapter 5. He says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ did not die for you. You are not saved because you have repented of your sins. You are saved so that you might repent of your sins because you can't repent of them apart from the work of Christ. And, and we should also, I should pause here for a moment and say a lot of these things uh, we need to understand happen in God's kindness, happen instantaneously. It's not as though we're saying that in order to be saved, God saves you and then it takes, or gives you some sort of salvation and then it takes a really long time for you to actually be saved because you're repenting of your sins. Well, this is more of a, a, a logical understanding of what is going on in salvation. God saves you, God makes you alive, and in doing so gives you the power to repent of your sins and place your faith in Christ right then. It all happens together, but the order is important. Because the order either displays the grace of God or it robs him of it. 
We are saved by grace and by grace alone. Totally unlovely, totally unworthy, totally unable to merit anything before God. And it's in that state that Christ says, you're mine. Not only has God made us alive, though, he has also raised us up to sit with Christ, Paul says in verse 6. Christ is king over all the world. At the end of chapter 1, Paul reminds us that he has been placed over all the powers in the world and in the heavens. And you have been given a place to sit with him. To sit at the right hand of the Father in Christ. And notice, uh, is again looking at verse 6. God has raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Notice that Paul does not say that we have been given a ticket so that we might one day sit in the heavenly places in Christ. No, God has made you alive and raised you up so that you do sit with Christ. That's what we're doing this morning. Right? That's what we're doing. When we're coming together to worship as the people of God, we are coming to the very throne room of God with all the saints around the world. And Christ is there. And you are there in Him before God Himself. Because we are in Christ, because we are secured by the seal of the Holy Spirit, Christians sit with Christ in His finished work. And there's one other thing, a couple other things I want to point out here about this. One is, this means that there is nothing else that needs to be done with regards to your salvation. If you are sitting in the heavenlies with Christ right now, by faith, it's done. It's finished. You're saved. Again, we know this because of the guarantee that the Holy Spirit is. Now, is there work to be done? Yes, absolutely. And in fact, Paul will go on to tell us about that. But we must first know and believe the truth that if you are in Christ, you are in him. And there is nothing, as Paul will argue in Romans chapter 8, nothing, absolutely nothing that can separate you from that love. It also means that you are able, if you are in Christ, I think this is one of the reasons, if you're in Christ, and in Christ meaning um, raised into the heavenlies, placed over all the powers of the world, this is part of also why I think James will say that, uh, call on Christians to resist the devil. And what will happen? Resist the devil and he will flee from you. This devil under whom you were, uh, uh, under whose dominion you were, you walked according to the prince of the power of the air. You were a, a bonded slave to Satan. He had complete control. He was the accuser. He had you down pat. There was no escape from him. And now, in Christ, you can tell the devil, be gone. You can resist him, and he flees from you. The weakest Christian in here, by the power of the Holy Spirit, if you have faith, as small as a mustard seed, Jesus would say, 
you can resist the devil. You can turn from your sins. You can resist the temptations of your heart, of your mind, of your flesh. You can say to yourself, I'm dead to sin. I can reckon myself dead to sin. I don't have to follow it any longer. We can do this day after day after day because of the power of Christ working in us. God is rich in mercy. He is rich in grace. And it was his design to save sinners, to raise the dead, so that he could display this grace for the ages to come. Is what Paul says in verse 7. God has done all of this so that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. You are saved by grace. His kindness to us is something that will never be forgotten. But you forget it. It's something that will never be forgotten because through the ages it's going to be proclaimed. But we forget it. It's something that will be passed on from generation to generation as we see God's work in families uh, going forth, discipling the nations, beginning with the little nations in your home. And as his grace is passed on from generation to generation, we will see this to the praise of his glory. And this is why Paul prays for these Christians that they would know the power of God. Because we forget the power of God. We forget the grace of God. Paul had prayed that they would know the power of God toward them, which he displayed at the resurrection. And so in Christ, as truly as we each were dead in our sins, we are each of us miracles. We are each of us resurrections. God displayed his power in raising Jesus from the dead and he displayed the same power in you when he raised you from the dead. And and for many of you, especially you children sitting in here, you might not know when that was. You might not know exactly when God raised you from the dead, but you need to realize that if you're in Christ, if you believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then you have been raised from the dead and God's power is working in you and it's as amazing as when he raised Jesus from the dead. That's God's grace in you. You are trophies of Christ's victory. Christian, that's what you are. You were dead in your sins. You were totally unlovely, totally unworthy, and God chose you anyways, not because of anything in you, but only because of his grace. And he decided to make you his beautiful trophy of his victory, and you get to walk around and display that victory to the world. And in you, God is manifesting this same power that when he raised Jesus from the dead. And so this is why Paul then comes to, in verse 8 and, and says it straight. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and it's not of yourselves. There's nothing in you. You are not a good person. You are not fundamentally left to yourself on your own 
a good person. Kids, do you ever wonder, why do I keep doing these bad things? It's because you're not a good person. You're not a good person that sometimes messes up. You're, apart from Christ, you're a dead person who can't do right. But God, who is rich in mercy and in grace, saves you. We are saved by grace alone. We could not have extended our hand or opened our heart to receive salvation from God. Rather, God is the only operating agent And he operates in us by granting faith. Paul says that it is the gift of God, and and it's been debated since Paul wrote it, which is the gift of God. For by grace you have been saved through faith, it is the gift of God. Is it the salvation that's the gift of God, or is it the faith that's the gift of God? Frankly, a dead man cannot have faith in Christ and cannot believe in the one true God And so the means of our salvation is a gift. Our salvation is a gift, and the means of our salvation is a gift. It is all of grace. And it's because of this, we can truly say that none of us can boast. There is nothing of your doing in which you can take pride when someone asks you, why are you a Christian? absolutely nothing. But there is much to boast in. There's much to boast in in the work that Christ has done in you. So what does Paul want you to know? He wants you to know the grace of God. He wants you to know the grace of God that is already on display in your life. It's not as though our knowledge of this actually puts it on display. It's already on display but do you see it? Do you believe it? Do you understand, do you see the grace of God in your life, in his granting of salvation? We are not saved by good works, but we are saved to them. And so this knowledge of God's saving grace does something in you, causes you to live a certain way, causes you to walk a certain way, causes you to talk a certain way. Paul says that we are his workmanship. We are God's workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. You're not saved by those good works, but having been saved, having been given faith, you're given a faith that produces good works. What are the good works that God has prepared before us? It's simply obedience in Christ. Learning to put to death your sin, the sin that is still in you, the sin that remains in you, those bad things that you still do, and instead turning in repentance and walking with Christ. That's the good work that God has called you to every day from the moment when you get up to when you go to bed and probably while you're sleeping too. These are the works that God has set before you to walk in, to walk in obedience to him and to his word. And so with every work that God has set before you to walk in and to do, do it remembering 
the power of God, remembering his grace to you. Why does that matter? Because if you remember it, then you can imitate him in your work. If you remember the grace of God in you, then you can imitate the grace of God in the works that he has called you to do. Because most of the time, those works involve other people. Those works involve your brother and your sister, your parents, your spouse, your children, your employer, your employee, your neighbor, the guy that just cut you off. Do you know the grace of God in your life? Because if you do, then you can walk in the works that he has set before you, imitating him in that grace. You are a living testimony to the grace of God, and you are his workmanship. You are his trophy. You are a walking, living testimony of God's grace, and he's not done with you yet. And isn't that a wonderful promise as well? Because if God was done with us now, that's a pretty limited testimony to Christ, it would seem. I've been saved, I've been made alive, but man, do I still screw it up. God is not done. He has saved you. You are a miracle of his saving grace. But he's continuing to work in you. This is what Paul says in Philippians chapter 1. Paul is confident that he who has begun a work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. He's begun a work in you. He's saved you. He's made you his. And he's going to bring it all the way to completion when we're seated with Christ in glory at the final day. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Father. For your mercy, thank you for your grace to your people. We are undeserving of it. Father, would you let the knowledge of this be evident to us? Would you let us see how undeserving we are of your grace? Let this take root in us. And then, Father, let it cause us to rejoice in our salvation. Let it cause us to live imitating you in your grace. Teach us to walk in the works that you've prepared for us by faith, knowing it is all of grace. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we come to the Lord's table, let me read to you two verses, one of which I read in, our, in the sermon. First from Philippians chapter 1. It's in the middle of the sentence, but Paul says, Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. And then also from Psalm 138, last verse, says, The Lord will perfect that which concerns me. Your mercy, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the works of your hands. God's promise to you is to continue the work that he has begun in you. And one of the ways that he does this is through a simple meal of bread and wine every Lord's Day. Every week, we assemble together, we confess our sins we offer our praise, we hear the word preached, and then we come to feast and fellowship at the Lord's table. And then from here, Jesus sends us out into the world, 
And we need to see and understand that he does not send you out empty, but he sends you out full, full of his body and his blood, which is food and drink indeed, full of the knowledge of what he has done for you, knowledge that does something in your life. If you are in Christ, your father chose you before the foundations of the world. He made you alive while you were dead in sin, and he adopted you and made you a son or daughter in whom he is well pleased. But he doesn't stop at that. His overflowing grace goes on. He feeds you every week, and he sends you out to walk in the works that he has prepared beforehand, not alone, but united inseparably with Christ. And so, to all who have been baptized in Jesus Christ, come. God in his gracious power is at work in you. So come and welcome to Jesus Christ. So here's the charge to you this week. Read that passage again and meditate on God's grace in your life. What has he done to change you? And then remember that grace and give that grace to others. Give that kind of grace, the kind of love that transforms the object of that love to those around you, to your brother, to your sister, to your father, to your mother, to your spouse, to your neighbor. If God has been so gracious to you, what, what, what else could you do? If you know that grace, it will spill out of you. So hear now the benediction of your Lord. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.